You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. Donald Lloyd-Jones, who is an associate professor of preventive medicine and of medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, and also a practicing preventive cardiologist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. He is a fellow of both the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about risk and what risk is and try and help the audience understand it because I think it's it's complicated because a lot of ads we see these days are all about relative risk reduction and those numbers are always way more impressive and sell a product much more than absolute risk reduction and numbers needed to treat. So can you go through that and put it in, in layman's terms for us doctors? Absolutely. I think you raise an important first point, which is understanding risk generally. And of course, when we say risk, we always should be meaning future events, not some current uh, evidence of disease, but future events. And when we talk about future risk, as you said, many times we see numbers that are relative risks when usually we should be talking about absolute risks. And, Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And to, to tease those out, if I tell someone that their relative risk of having a heart attack is 10 compared to someone else, sounds scary, but it's hard to know what I've actually told them because if the other person's risk is zero, 10 times zero is still zero. Whereas if the other person's risk is 5%, then my patient's risk is now 50%, and that's pretty real. So relative risks given that they don't have much context usually, are not that helpful. How can we as physicians make big pharma get rid of it? Is that, or we're just, there's no way. It's not going away. I don't think it's ever going away. In terms of treatment effect presentations from clinical trials, I think we're kind of stuck with it. But we should always be very careful in that setting to look at a relative risk reduction of 25% which may be only dropping the absolute risk from 4% to 3%. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, that means that out of 100 patients we would treat for however long, only one of them would actually have one fewer event. Right. So, that's, so the number needed to treat would be 100 people if you have an absolute risk reduction of 1% or a relative risk reduction of, like you said, 25%. Exactly. So as you said, people like to show the 25% number but the real thing we should be focusing on is that 1%, which means we have to treat 100 patients to prevent one event. And what do you consider a good number needed to treat where you really think you're doing something good for that patient? Is it 50? Is it 25? Is it 5? Well, I think that depends on the context. It depends on if we already have some viable treatments or not for whatever event we're trying to prevent. All right. So let's talk about first myocardial infarction. Sure. You know, I think that once we get into the realm of something under 50, that is treating 50 patients to prevent one event, we're starting to talk about real numbers because myocardial infarction is quite common. I certainly like to see it lower than that. And probably the best numbers needed to treat are when we treat blood pressure in elderly patients to try to prevent stroke. Yeah, those numbers, I think, are around four. They can get as low as five to ten, absolutely. Yeah, they're pretty yep. impressive. Yeah, and that's very impressive treatment effect. I agree. And that's just with a diuretic or a beta blocker. 
Did that stuff come out of Europe, out of Britain? I think there was some trials out of the UK that had some really good numbers. That's right. And even the SHEP trial here in the U.S., uh, systolic hypertension in the elderly program, uh, showed very low numbers needed to treat as well. Do you think, as physicians, these are the questions we should be asking? You know, obviously, drug reps are just salespeople. But, you know, when I ask them, what's the number needed to treat? They, they, they scramble. They don't know what to do. And they say, I'll get back to you on that one, doctor. No, the, these are clearly the numbers on which we should base our decisions. And in, that's evidence-based medicine. Exactly right. Where are we in the current state of art for cardiovascular disease risk prediction? A little bit of a change of pace, but now we're talking about, I mean, I think you would agree that, that if someone already has cardiovascular disease and is in a secondary prevention mode, I think everyone agrees we're going to treat that patient very intensively for any residual risk factors. I, I would hope so, yes. Exactly. So that's kind of a no-brainer. That's kind of cookbook at this point. I think where the frontier is in understanding who we should treat for prevention is really trying to refine primary prevention targets. So work on risk stratification a little better. Exactly. And the current state of the art is, of course, as dictated by the ATP3 guidelines from 2001, is to estimate the risk in the next 10 years of a a non-fatal heart attack or a coronary death in your patient based on established risk factors, Mm -hmm. age, sex, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, total and HDL whether they're treated already for their blood pressure, and whether they have diabetes or smoke. My experience with Framingham calculations is that I might as well toss a coin in the air. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's very easy to identify a high-risk individual, isn't it? I mean, if a middle-aged man walks in who smokes, has diabetes, and has terrible lipids and an elevated blood pressure... No-brainer. You don't need Framingham for that. Correct. And likewise, if you have a 30-year-old woman who jogs every day and has fabulous numbers... You don't need Framingham for her either. But in the middle, there is some, I think, utility to risk scoring people. Um, If they have one or maybe two risk factors that are moderately uh, elevated and, you know, you're on the fence about whether you want to treat those, I think understanding their near-term tenure risk can sometimes be a useful thing to do. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Donald Lloyd-Jones, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, and we're talking about risk and uh, trying to improve risk prediction. Dr. Jones, I want to bring in a real-life situation. I had a patient in my office yesterday. It was a 52-year-old woman with a total cholesterol of 243. She had an HDL of 106, LDL of 116, no other risk factors whatsoever. And traditionally, uh, we would think she's fine. I don't believe that. So I did a carotid IMT on her. I found a lot of plaque and I did a lipoprotein A on her and she had a twice normal LPA. So once again, if I just relied on the ATP3 approach, I would have said, you know what, you're fine. You're great. You got a beautiful HDL. See you later. And we do need to improve risk prediction. Right. Well, you know, I I think you raised a couple of really interesting points. One is those patients with very high HDLs sometimes have sick HDL, not good HDL. It's dysfunctional. So, So we do need to look a little bit more carefully at them. But merely because she's a woman and not yet that old, she's going to have a low Framingham risk estimate no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I think that raises one of the problems when we impose these treatment thresholds on the continuous Framingham risk score, we sometimes miss the forest for the trees. And what I mean by that is 
the function actually performs great when we apply it to populations. When we right. apply it to individuals, we have to be careful to understand what we're saying. And that is, if someone has a 10-year risk estimate of, let's say, 7%, that means that if we do it on 100 people, 7 of them will have an event, 93 won't. So you're not done because you have to figure out, now, is my patient part of the 7 or part of the 93? And I think that oftentimes we hear low risk, you know, in the ATP3 scheme, and we think we're done. And in fact, I think nothing's further from the truth. That's when it's actually hardest to figure out, is my low risk patient actually part of the bad group or part of the good group? And you took the extra step with your patient, I think appropriately so, because you had some suspicions and figured out that she probably is one of the bad actors in that, quote, low-risk group, even though she had a good-looking framing risk score. Well, how do we make the leap from 10-year risk assessments to lifetime risk assessments? How do we even begin that? Is there a formula? Is there a guideline? Great question. So one of the things that we've been looking at is changing that risk horizon away from that purely 10-year risk window, which may not be that useful for younger patients, and expanding it to the end of the lifespan. And when we do that, uh, lifetime risk estimates take into account a number of things, not just your risk for cardiovascular disease, but also the likelihood that you'll die of something else first. And when we're thinking long-term, that's, that's actually kind of an important thing to take into consideration. Do you ever have the conversation with patients, you know, what would you rather die from? Do you want to die from a hideous, slow death from cancer, or would you rather have a massive MI in your sleep? Sure. I think we, we have that conversation with our patients as well as ourselves. But you know what? It turns out, this is something that I think the lifetime risk concept has made nicely evident, that if you make it to middle age free of a major risk factor, your likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease during your re remaining lifespan is incredibly low. So you really escape that risk mm -hmm. if you get to middle age with good-looking risk factor levels. And you live a lot longer. So not only do you avoid cardiovascular disease, you also avoid other chronic illnesses. So you live longer and you live healthier. And I think these long-term risk productions have really helped us understand that, you know, a healthy lifestyle and good-looking risk factors actually buy you healthy, quality life into much older age rather than developing cardiovascular disease earlier and dying earlier as well. Right. So how are you getting the message out to change cardiologists and internists' way of thinking about this look at lifetime risk? Well, and, and to circle back, this, is, this will answer that question, but to circle back to, to something else, it turns out to be much more difficult to do equations for lifetime risk estimation than it is for 10-year for a variety of reasons. But we do have a published model that can stratify people very nicely into very high, moderately high, and very low lifetime risks based on their risk factor burden in middle age. So if you have a patient in their 40s or 50s, uh, you can figure out where they fit into one of these strata and look at their lifetime risk for developing cardiovascular disease as well as their remaining lifespan. What's, what's our estimate of their remaining lifespan? We're now trying to apply that stratification scheme and put it onto a web-based platform so that people can predict both 10-year and lifetime risk estimates for non-fatal heart attack and CHD death, for fatal and non-fatal stroke, and for total CVD. So hopefully that'll be something that in the near future will be available to all clinicians. So right now, if I want to get my hands on that, can I? Well, the best place currently is in, in that circulation paper uh, from 2006, but we're hoping that, you know, when we get this up on the web, that we'll 
uh, get the message out very quickly and broadly. Are you seeing uh, a dramatic change in, in risk stratification when you do the new type of uh, prediction? You know what? I do use this in my practice, which, as you mentioned, is heavily focused on prevention. And because the 10-year risk estimates are so unimpressive for young people, when I also show them their lifetime risk estimate, at least initially seems to get their attention much better because the lifetime risk estimates are almost always substantially higher than their 10-year risk estimate. Dr. Donald Lloyd-Jones, thank you very much for coming on the show today and uh, helping us think a new way about risk prediction. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O.com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.